Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, so I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. In 1930, Catholic Bishop John Moore donated a 14-foot bronze cross to the Calvary Cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1930, this work of art was valued at about $10,000. This would be $10,000 one year after the Great Crash of 1929. This is depression. This 14-foot cross stood at the entrance of the cemetery for over 50 years until one day, a couple of wise guys decided to remove the cross, cut it up into pieces, and put it into their pickup truck. Now, these uh, gentlemen were never apprehended, but the police believe that they took this 900 pounds of, and cut it into scrap and sold it for about $450. Little did they know about the value of that cross. You know, the same is true today. Little do people often know about the value of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a cross, and on that day, the greatest transaction in all of history took place. It's not the physical cross that's so valuable, but it's what it represents, who it represents, and what he's done for you and me, and the message that it conveys. The Apostle Paul took up uh, this discussion with the Christians in the ancient city of Corinth in the first century. Corinth was a Greek city, and it and the Corinthian church was a new church. It was an aging city. It was an aging Greek culture and an aging Greek philosophy of those days. So our focus is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And here we find that the message of the cross, and you have an outline in your program, the message of the cross is perceived differently by different people, just like it is today. The message is is perceived differently by different people. For example, in verse 18, some view this message as foolish. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, is the message that saves people from their sins and brings the opportunity for forgiveness and eternal life. And God has one requirement about this message, and it is simply to believe, to receive the message by faith, to put one's trust in the person of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. I didn't get this for a long time, that Jesus is alive He resurrected from the dead, and he's alive right now. He's not a dead Savior. And all we do is put our faith in him and for what he's done for for us, that he's paid for our sin. He did the work, and we don't have to do the work today for our own salvation. When I was in college, I majored in philosophy, and I wanted to be an intellectual, so I became an atheist. I had a pastor friend seemed to care about me, and he used to visit with me and talk to me, and he shared about his Christian faith with me. Because he was such a nice guy, and I kind of liked him, I was willing to listen to him from time to time, but not very many Christians did I really 
care about giving the time of day to. I remember in our discussions that he gave me a theological journal, and that, you know, that impressed me. A theological journey, a journal with the title of the article, The Epistemological Necessity for God, written by Francis Schaeffer. I didn't know who Francis Schaeffer was back in those days. And, uh, but I liked, because in philosophy, I took a class called epistemology. So I, wanted to, I was willing to read something that I thought made sense. And I was very impressed by Francis Schaeffer and uh, his thinking process. And so I sat down with my friend Joel, who gave me this uh, theological journal, and I was sort of interested to talk about these intellectual concepts about God. I might be open to pursuing this approach. And then it came down to the discussion, well, how can you really know God? How can you really know God for sure? And he shared, again, for about the 90th time, well, it's about Jesus, and he died on the cross for you, and his blood was shed, and it paid the penalty for your sin. And I go to myself, that's weird. That doesn't make any sense. We're done. And then I found a way to conclude uh, the conversation. Um, Some view the message of the cross as foolishness. The Greek word is the same word as moron. It's moronic. The cross is moronic. The cross is foolish. The cross is weird. The message of the cross doesn't make sense to a thinking person, at least for some people. Um, the first group fits with the words of Jesus in, in uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, that was God's requirement, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but... Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's Son. And the point is, there's a group of people. In fact, if you think about it, pe people hate to... You could divide the world into two groups. And I know people hate to do that. There is a group who has believed into, unto eternal life, and there is a group who, who will be perishing. That's a fair assessment. Jesus said, for those who haven't believed, they stand condemned already, or they're perishing, or as Romans uh, 6.23 des describes, the wages of sin is death. That's not just physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's a total separation from God. Some view this message as foolish. Also in verse 18, some view this message as the power of God. That is, to those who are being saved, those who believe in Christ and are born again, another term that Jesus used in John 3. Uh, th th this is a discussion about those who are being saved from the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. To this group, the message of the cross is the power of God. Power over sin, power, tr power over spiritual death, power to forgive sins, power to change a life, 
power to give a fresh start, power to overcome hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we have some of those. It's the same message, two groups, two responses, a different perspective. The message of the cross. We call it the gospel. It is good news. For some people, it's moronic. On the other hand, some people see the gospel as the power of God. I hope you've experienced the power of God in your life. Secondly, the message of the cross confounds human reasoning, verses 19 through 25. It confounds human reasoning. And we start with verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And if you're looking at your outline, A, God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are not man's ways. The Apostle Paul alludes to a passage in Isaiah here in verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Humanly speaking, God says the wisdom of the wise is really not all that wise from a human perspective. And the really smart people in the world really aren't that smart from a human perspective, if they don't know about the most important knowledge in having a relationship with Christ. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14 says, The Lord says, so God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet, 8th century before Christ, These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. They're religious people. But their hearts are far from me. They worship Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. They're just going through the motions. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonders upon wonder, miracles. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. God said he would do this 800 years before. And when he sent his son, Jesus, he would begin to fulfill some of these prophecies. God's ways are not man's ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. The prophet says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, this is God, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so when man tries to figure out the universe, when man applies all of his knowledge and all of his wisdom, um, he will not be able to attain the knowledge of God. He will never be able to attain the knowledge of God, no matter how smart, no matter how much education or how high someone's IQ is. Humanly speaking, they will never attain the knowledge of God apart from God. God reminds his people that they are finite creatures and they cannot access access the infinite mind of God with the power of the human intellect. In verses 20 and 21, God's wisdom makes foolish human wisdom. God's wisdom makes foolish human wisdom. Look at verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Where is the wise man? You know, remember that wisdom is an extremely important part of the Greek culture, the, the ancient Greek civilization. 
some of the smartest philosophy comes out of the period uh, right before uh, the birth of Christ. And I love to study Greek philosophy in, in uh, college. Where is the wise person? And where is the teacher of the law? And so the Apostle Paul is directing this to the teacher of the law being a Jewish teacher, like a Pharisee, uh, a scribe. And he's also addressing it to the Greek culture of the day. And by the way, the Apostle Paul is very culturally relevant here. He knows his culture. He's talking right to them. He understands them. Where is the philosopher of this age? Um, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? When did God make foolish the wisdom of the world? When he decided that Jesus would be his way. When the way to God would be through his son, Jesus Christ. When the way to God would be through a message that Jesus died for our sins. That's when he made the wisdom of this world foolish. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the way that the Father... uh, determined would be the way of wisdom. Um, So God's wisdom makes foolish human wisdom. By the way, God is not anti-intellectual in any way. He's not. But when we think that we can approach the world with a religious focus or an intellectual focus and leave God out of it, we're headed for huge trouble. God is the one who determines how the things would work in this world. Humans are not the ones who created the universe. Man is not the measure of all things, as the Greek philosopher Protagoras said in the 5th century before Christ. Man can try to figure out everything on his own, but he will fall short. God has had a different plan. How do we attain a relationship with God? How do we attain personal knowledge of God? How do we know God? How do we know the way to please God? And God's plan is to embrace the message about Jesus by faith. It's to believe what God has said about his son. This is God's plan. It's not, it's not man's approach. Um, it's very dangerous to put God in a box. And, you know, we grow up in our world and we have a perception of our world and then we think, this is how God should do it. If I were God, this is how, you don't, and people don't even think that. They don't, that doesn't cross their mind, but this is how it should be. I will establish the way I think God should have done it. The measurements for this is what would be right. This is how, if there is eternal life, it should happen this way. Maybe it's by being good or being smart or whatever. Um, but that's not how God has done it. The message he's given us is 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1 through 4. And if you've been around the bridge very much, you probably think I overquote this, but it's okay. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, this message of good news. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, you received it by faith, and you have taken your stand. You stand before God, forgiven. You stand before God with eternal life. You stand before God as a child of God and a citizen of heaven and the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved, saved from the penalty of sin, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Next slide. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel right there. Christ died for our sin. That's the work of God. That's good news. That's the message of the cross. And God's requirement for us is to believe. It's to receive the message by faith. Verses 22 and 23, God's message does not fit the patterns of human reasoning. God's message does not fit the patterns of human reasoning. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. The Apostle Paul understands his culture. He understands what's important to these people. Jews demand signs. They demand miracles. They want um, God to give them supernatural events that will prove, will authenticate the message and the messenger. That was just part of the nature of the Old Testament scriptures. So uh, it all started with Moses. And, you know, God said to Moses, you're going to go and lead my people and, and talk to Pharaoh, and, and he's going to let them go free. And Moses says, I can't talk well, and uh, how are they going to believe me? And so God said, Moses, take your hand, put it into your cloak, put it into your robe. And Moses did, and he pulled it out, and it was leprous. All of a sudden, he had a major problem. And he said, God said, Moses, take your hand, put it back in, pulled it out, and it was cleansed. It was healed. It was a miracle. It was a sign. It was, it was to show God's people that Moses is going to speak for God. Here's a miracle. The second one was, Moses, take your staff, his wooden staff, throw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake. That would have been scary, wouldn't it? And, and he's, he said, Moses, pick it up. And so Moses reached down, he picked it up, and it turned back into a staff. It was a miracle. That's not ordinary. It's a miracle. And God used it to show the people, pay attention to Moses, because he's speaking for me. That was the nature of the Jewish religion. So when Jesus comes along, what do they want? He does all kinds of miracles every day, or, you know, it's just kind of normal, part of his ministry, miracles, and they're still not getting it. And they, they come to him in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks me, for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's all he's going to do. And so he did give a sign. It was his death, burial, and resurrection. Miraculous. Proving who he was ultimately for the nation Israel. Paul says the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. The Greeks search for wisdom. They pursue the intellectual approach. Let's talk about God. Let's reason this through. Uh, let's read about him. Let's see what other people think and let's just discuss this and see what makes sense to us. And then we will arrive at some kind of occlusion about what we think about God. And that's the intellectual approach. Um, they're searching for wisdom through discussion and reasoning and mental work and logic. 
And Paul says, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. It's not the same. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. God's message does not fit the patterns of human reasoning. We want it to sometimes. People want it to fit their pattern the way they think, the way they think it should be. That's not what God has done for us. Uh, You know, we say, I'd like to prove it this way. If I could just think it through um, and come to conclusion. To the Jewish people, this message of the cross, this whole thing about Jesus was a total embarrassment. Christ crucified. Think about it. He, he hung on a tree. Cursed is anything that hangs on a tree. He was cursed by God. No doubt about it. Because he bore the sin of the world. He bore the curse. That's totally embarrassing. He's a criminal. He was treated like a criminal in Jerusalem. Where the temple is located. It's so embarrassing. It's a scandal. That's what uh, stumbling block means. It's scandalous. It was just totally, outrageously embarrassing to the Jewish person. We can't. This can't be from God. And, you know, you think about the the Greek philosopher. You think about the, the Greek thinker. This whole thing, God's suffering, that makes no sense at all. God would come to this earth. That's extremely rare. And gods don't like to come to this earth. And that he was defeated, that's stupid. That's how this was perceived. It's how it still is perceived today in some circles. We want proof and we would like to do things our way. God says, no, I've chosen another way. And it was before you were born. To the Jews, it's an embarrassment. To the Gentiles, it's moronic. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Back to Isaiah, eight centuries before Christ. The Lord Almighty is the one you regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the only one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone. Now catch this. He will be a stone. That is, the Lord Almighty will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Next slide. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. It will be the Lord God Almighty. And by, by the way, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. He will be, um, he will cause people to stumble. He will be a stumbling block, a rock that makes him fall. Romans chapter 9, verses 31 and 33. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. They had their way of doing it. It's not how God had intended for them. They had created their own religious way to do things. Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus. Verse 33, as it is written, some, see, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That rock is a person. 
and the one who believes in him. Peter identifies that in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. And Jesus is that rock. In verses 24 and 25, God's message brings power and true wisdom to those who believe. God's message brings power and wisdom. Look at verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those whom God has called, those are the ones who have heard this message. God has called them through the presentation of the gospel. They have heard it, and they have embraced that by faith, and they've received it by faith. They are believers, both Jews and Greeks, because the offer is to everyone. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So some view this as uh, it's a scandal. Some view it as moronic. And some view this as the power of God. This gospel is for all people. Religious Jews, Greek philosophers, all people. Christ is the power of God. He has the power to forgive, the power to change lives. The power to give eternal life. It is the wisdom of God. It is God's intelligent choice. It is His plan. This way. It's not the intellectual way. It's not the religious way. It's not the moralist way. It is His way. And it is the cross and the message of the cross. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. If God could be foolish, he would be way wiser than human wisdom. If God could be weak, his weakness would be way stronger and more powerful powerful than all the human strength on earth. So here's what we said so far. The message of the cross is perceived differently by different people. The message of the cross confounds human reasoning. Thirdly, the message of the cross changes lives forever. Verse 26. We see that God chooses the unimpressive by human standards to impress the worldly wise with heavenly standards. Verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of who you were at that point that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Not many of you were by human standards. Uh, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential by human standards. Not many of you were of noble birth. You know, it wasn't about your family. It wasn't about your social uh, group. It wasn't about your intellect. It wasn't about how popular you were. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to uh, shame the strong. And also verse uh, 28 and 29. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one could boast before him. This is what I did not like about Christianity. This whole idea that Christianity is kind of for wimps. Christianity is for the weak. Those people who are weak physically and those people who are weak emotionally and those people who are weak spiritually. And it's just, I didn't, it it was not attractive to me at the time. Because it seemed like Christians were people who just needed something. And those of us who don't need anything, we're just fine. And 
Oftentimes, people who don't have financial resources or do have physical needs, they're the first to recognize they need help. They need somebody outside of themselves to turn to. And they find that it's the God of the universe and he's created them. He's designed this relationship and he's just waiting for each of us to come to him and acknowledge him and give him thanks for what he's done for us. God's people aren't important because of the world's standards. They're important because of their relationship with him. Their identity and destiny is all wrapped up into him. It's not because uh, we're kings or queens or we're presidents or because uh, we have a certain income level or we know somebody. It's because of our relationship with God. It's not about whether we got straight A's uh, or we were the most popular in our class. It's because we've trusted Jesus. Verses 30 and 31, God's wisdom in Christ produces righteousness, holiness, and redemption for those who believe. Look at verse 30. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become this, the God of true wisdom. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of the way God designed this, who has become for us wisdom from God. Jesus has become wisdom from God. That is your righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Um, knowing Christ personally is true wisdom from God. It is because of him that you are in Christ, the Apostle Paul says. In Christ means you are connected to him. You have a spiritual, organic connection to Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. You are a part of his body. You are a member of his spiritual body, the body of Christ, the church. Because of Christ and faith in him, we have a righteousness as a result, it's a fruit of our relationship, a right standing before God, um, a, a rightness about it. It's the opposite of a wrongness, a wrong standing before God. It's, um, it's the opposite of being in an evil place. It's a rightness, a righteousness. Because of Christ, we have his holiness. Uh, because of our faith in Christ, He's made us clean. He's, he's cleansed us from sin. And this idea of holiness means that he's set us apart. And he, he has put us in a place that we now are, can serve him appropriately because we've been made holy. And because of Christ, we have redemption. He's paid our price. He paid for our sin penalty. And, and you know, how big is the sin penalty? You ever stop and think about that? How big is the sin penalty of the world? Well, how big is your sin penalty? If we could pay for it in dollars, how much would we have to pay to cover your sin if we could pay for it in dollars? Just start adding up the people in this room, in this city, in this country, in this world. How big is that sin penalty? We've got to go back to Adam and cover all that. And only an infinite God with an infinite value, the cross is infinitely valuable can cover the sin penalty of the world, which is, by the way, finite, because it'll always come down to a number of people, and Jesus's, the cross and Jesus' life were infinitely valuable. Verse 31, Therefore is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is an act of worship. It's really about giving God the credit. 
boast in the Lord. Give God the credit. It's He who has provided for you. It is He who has done the work of our salvation. Uh, He is the one who has given the plan of salvation. He is the one who's made it easy to come to faith in Him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this. Apostle Paul was alluding to this passage. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts, boast in this. Next slide. That they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercise kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So, When you relate to your world on a day-to-day basis, expect people to think that the gospel sounds foolish. You know, sometimes we get all worried about, well, they, they don't like me. Well, people don't like the gospel. And it's okay because t- it takes time to process this information. It doesn't sound intellectual. It sometimes doesn't make sense to people in our world. In my story, over three years after my discussion with Joel, I found myself open to further discussion about the message of Christ. And uh, in a three-day period on a weekend, I found myself very focused in trying to intellectually understand the gospel. I wanted to attain understanding and then bingo, I'm smart enough now, I get it, and I confess that the whole weekend wore me out. Um, I was in discussion with a, at our friend's home with family about who Jesus was. My six-year-old daughter, Tina, was in the corner, and I kept trying to understand. She says, Daddy, without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. And frankly, I was a little embarrassed by that. And, uh, but the bottom line was, she was right. And um, it took me another 24 hours, but I humbled myself. And I, as an atheist, I prayed, I reached out to God, and um, I said something like, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I understand Jesus died for me. So I'm just going to trust him right now. And I'm going to ask him to come into my life and help me to be the person he wants me to be. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't expect anything to happen. But over a period of a few days, things started to change big time. And my life was radically changed forever. And the good news was it changed my marriage uh, quite drastically as well. So God is still in the business of changing lives. That's the good news. He can change your life. He can change your husband's life. He can change your wife's life. He can change your mom. He can change your dad. He can change your kids, no matter how old they are. He can change uh, a friend. He can change a coworker. He can change a neighbor, and he just wants us to trust him. Today, we're going to celebrate communion, and we're just reminded about the message of the cross. We're reminded that Christ died for our sins, and he still changes lives today. He purchased our redemption. So we're going to share in a time of communion. Let me just say a couple things here. One is our communion is open to anyone who considers himself 
a follower of Christ, anyone. And when we take the bread and the cup, the bread is a symbol. It reminds us of Jesus' body. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He gave himself. He gave his body on the cross for us in exchange. His life for my life. And so the bread reminds us of his body. And the cup reminds us of his blood. His blood was shed. It was a payment for our sin. It reminds us so that we never forget what God has done for us. And so we do this over and over again. It's a practice of the church. And it's to remind us, and it's just to bring this gospel message back central to our own lives. What's our response? Obedience. So I want to pray, and I want to ask those who are going to serve communion to come and um, get our communion prepared for us. Thank you, Father, right now for the privilege to worship you and the privilege to share in a time of communion with you and with the body of Christ. You say in your word that we are to examine our lives before we share in this time, that if there is sin, we should confess that we do that now, that we come to this time spiritually clean before you. You tell us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will purify us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and we thank you. And so before you come this morning, just make sure that your heart is right with God. Thank you, Father, for the bread that reminds us of the body of Christ. Thank you for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out on our behalf that paid for our sin. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the message of the cross. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen.